if you're going to lead other people, you need to start with yourself. Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest problems. Today's leader is Hans Vestberg, the CEO of Verizon. He'll explain why leaders must learn to lead themselves first, and he'll share his life's passion to use connectivity to bridge global digital gaps. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. I cannot manage Verizon today as I did Ericsson in Chile in 1994. It would be a disaster. So you need to adapt to leadership. And I think people don't realize that sometimes, but you need to spend time on it to be a really good leader. And I, I still have a lot of learning to do, and I, I have a lot of improvement. Hans Vestberg studies leadership. Even as a young man, as an athlete, he paid attention to what motivated people and what connected them to bigger goals. And today, as the chief executive for one of the largest telecommunication companies in the world, he understands the wider impact that his actions and his energy can have. It's led him to develop some unique tactics, like tracking his time to make sure he's putting it toward the right things. This is super nerdy, I'm sorry, but I have everything in Excel. I can float from 2009 every month up to 2021. And as his day-to-day puts him in contact with world leaders and CEOs, he takes a moment to ask them key questions to learn from their approaches. I have the luxury to meet people that are just extraordinary leaders in the private and public sector almost every day. I have taken a, a sort of a, a, a view that I try to learn something from them. Knowing the impact his actions can have, he's dedicated his leadership to bridging digital gaps. He's one of the many authors behind the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 goals designed for a better world by 2030. Hans even pushed for connectivity to be an 18th goal, knowing its impact on jobs and education. And while he hasn't given up on that, he's currently the first chairman of the Edison Alliance, a World Economic Forum initiative dedicated to bringing affordable broadband to more than 3 billion people. The most scalable and most sustainable solution in order to, to close the gaps we have in our society uh, and supporting all the 17 uh, SDGs is actually using technology. He'll talk about all that, but first he'll take us back to some of his earliest leadership lessons, ones he learned on the handball court. My dream was to be a professional in team handball and even making to the national team I came pretty high up and I had the luxury of playing in the Swedish league and I played in the Brazilian professional league, but I never reached the heights that I, that I dreamt of. But it learned many other things, especially around teams and working in diverse teams with different people in different circumstances. And when I started to be a leader at a fairly young age, uh, I brought everything from sports. Uh, and, and that I have a lot to thank of thankful today uh, that I dedicate so much of my, my life to sports in the early career. What's something that you learned from the sport that you think you wouldn't have gotten any other way? I think that what I learned from the beginning that I could be the captain of the team, but I was far away from being the best one. When I started competing with really good people, I realized I wasn't that good. I was not even close to the star. But what I learned was that I fitted into the team anyhow. I, I had the qualities to encourage and support and lead others. And um, I usually said that uh, when it was the most critical times of a game, 
I knew the guy to left on me, he needed a lot of encouragement. The guy to right on me, he needed all the calmness. And I think I, I brought that with me, that leadership is about uh, knowing the individuals you lead. Uh, and you need to adapt your leadership to the people around you as well and how you approach them in order to get out the best performance of them. And I think that I took with me all the way. I mean, still today, I, I, I use a lot of those analogies when I speak about leadership and how I learned the hard way that you don't need to be the star to be an important person for the team. So your father was your coach, and he'd given you some feedback on your future as a handball player. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, my father, yeah. So my father was my coach from when I was six years old until I was 23. So he dedicated his life to me. And I think that he he probably learned me everything I know about leading team and leading people. It was very much about thinking about the team all the time. And forget about your failures. If you are missed, the most important was seeing that a team succeeded and that you contributed to the team and you did your best. And uh, it's things that you bring with you, those small things that he told me uh, during those years that are oh, critical for, for all my life. And I think that even today, when I interview people for a job, I talk, I ask them more about their childhood and, uh, and how they were brought up because that formulates you as a person. So that was the same for me. And my father was, uh, he, he was the strongest leader I've seen. And, and he, of course, has a huge impact on my life. In leadership, you often have to balance what people need with what needs to be accomplished. How do you balance that? I think that um, when I became CEO for the first time, I, I, I was looking for a, a manual, what is the CEO doing? And uh, I didn't find it because there's no, nothing to read. There's no, this is how you should do it. So I decided actually to do a planning how I would spend my hours in advance because I was so worried I would be consumed of a topic and I was miss something else. So I started uh, 2009 to actually uh, dedicate my time in percentages in six six different buckets, three external and three internal, which all were aligned to the strategy of the company and where we were going was really important. And then I started to follow up. How was my hour spent a quarter compared to my forecast? I have done that since 2009 and I still do it. So I actually measure every hour I work. I put them in, in, in the six buckets in order to see that it reflects what is important for, for the company and where I should dedicate my time. And it can swing. I had had quarters, for example, when I became the CEO of Verizon, where I spent roughly 80% on the internal three buckets, meaning talents, the strategy, uh, uh, and the board. And then only 20% externally. And it being quarters when I spent 80% externally, when we have done a, a big acquisition and things like that, I speak a lot with customers, I speak a lot with shareholders, I'm in media. So I have all the time been measuring that. And, and one thing I always do, just to tell my team, when I meet the top leaders of my company, I always put up the graph how I spent the time the last quarter. And I always ask them, okay, how did you spend your last quarter? And uh, did you really support where you should be, or where you should spend your hours? And I think that's how I have been managing because it doesn't really matter if you're CEO or whatever. As long as you're a leader, you lead other people, you need to see that you spend the time on the things that are the right for bringing that function or unit forward. Uh, and that was a learning for me. And, and, and I'm a super nerd. I have everything in Excel, so I measure that every day because it works for me in order to stay stay very focused on the things that are important for the company. So I don't spend on things that are great and cool and fun for me, but has nothing to do for the company. 
So you're tracking your hours in Excel and also a calendar program? I have a calendar program that are different colors, six different colors for the different type of things. Then I point that down to Excel and then we do a lot of graphs so I can show in a bar every quarter or every month actually how I spend the time. And you can see that over time how it changes. So I can basically, this is super nerdy, I'm sorry, but I can plot from 2009 every month up to 2021. I had a small gap when I was free for six months, which I which was uh, in between two jobs, which I didn't plot. And that was a really tough for me. But uh, other than that, I have it. So was there some kind of event that triggered this? Some kind of a turning point when you realized that you had to change how you worked? I think the turning point there was that I was appointed a CEO. But of course, when the water goes up, basically, uh, you, you need to float with it in order to manage more and more if you go up in a, in a hierarchy. I found myself basically every time standing on the same place and trying to manage the same way as I did in my previous position. But this is much more different, a different uh, vertical or maybe much bigger. And I think I've learned every time to make that pivot quicker, to move to another level of of dealing uh, with my leadership. And I think that's what everybody struggles, struggles with when you move to a new job, you know. Hey, I, I, I knew how to work before. Now I'm going to have a new job. I bring that with me. That's usually, you, you at least need to do some adaptation in order to succeed in that job. But I, I think as anybody else, I've, I've been super stressed. I worked like crazy in order to, to succeed in my new job and, and actually applying uh, the process for my previous one. And I had a lot of that between my, I would say, between my age of 30 to 40, super anxiety, just working day by night to, to deliver in order to see that what are the most important things that I should deliver and see that others are working as well. But you, you learn by time. And I, I think I'm not saying that I'm perfect night and now I'm far away from that, but at least I'm, I'm better right now. I, I, I still improve because for me, I spend time on my leadership because it's so important. That's really what I what I can contribute to this organization. I have better technical people. I have better accountant. Everybody's better in everything than me. The only thing I can contribute is to lead and empower these people and give them the North Star where we're going and giving the energy that they like, that like to be at this place and, and, and a clear direction. Uh, and that's why leadership becomes so important to me because that is the competence that I have and I need to develop it. I cannot manage Verizon today as I did Ericsson in Chile in 1994. It would be a disaster. So you need to adapt to leadership. You need to spend time on it. And I, I think I do that. I spend a lot of time on my leadership. So we talk at the forum all the time about the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. And I was just fascinated to learn that there could have been an 18th goal. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this 18th goal and why it's so important? And I have not given up, by the way. I started to work with the Millennium Development Goals, and some might know that was the goals from 2010, uh, 20, 2015. And uh, I saw the huge impact of, of mobility, broadband, and cloud services because they were scalable. And if you got it, you'd be part of the society. You can solve some of the most challenging societies for the most vulnerable people if they're connected. So when the discussion came up about the, the SDGs in 2013 and 14, I, I clearly said, I think that every nation should have a, a sort of a mobility broadband and cloud strategy in order to see that their citizens are connected. Because what that means is that they can be part of the society and it's a scalable and sustainable solution. And we all know that it 
didn't become an 18. Uh, but I've always talked about this 18. And honestly, also right now, when we have seen COVID, uh, which has basically leapfrogged all the digitalization with five to seven years or things that we talked about ten, five years ago, remote learning, uh, telehealth, uh, work from home, things that we we talked about, we just leapfrog and suddenly we open up a, a new digital divide that we didn't see because we were moving so fast. And then I came back to it again. I mean, for me, still the most scalable and most sustainable solution in order to, to close the gaps we have in our society uh, and supporting all the 17 uh, SDGs is actually using technology. And, and that's why I'm I'll continue to say 18 is needed, but maybe it's a fu- fundament for all the other 17. And uh, so, no, I, 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 that's what I've seen in my life, and I see how important it is. So this need for digital inclusion has really been driven home this past year. But even when people realize that these gaps have gotten wider, there's still plenty of work to do. Are there special challenges that we're facing even with this extra awareness? I think it's three things. It's, it's the accessibility to technology, it's the affordability of the technology, and it's sort of the usability of it. And I can just quit briefly. But so, of course, accessibility, it has to be the coverage either of a fiber or if it's wireless, so you're connected uh, and can be able to access the technologies. That, that's, that's one challenge, which I think is going faster and faster. We're closing that gap more and more, even though half of the Earth population still doesn't have internet. Now they're starting getting mobile coverage, so over time they will get it. So that's moving. There's more to be done. That is affordability, which is another challenge, because even though you might have coverage, you cannot afford it. And, and today, for me, that's an infrastructure that governments need to understand. It's one of the most important infrastructure to reach their citizens and include them in, in the society and give them the services they need to have. If that's healthcare or education, regardless where they live or where they are born, doesn't really matter. And the third one is usability. There are digital illiteracy. There are they're lacking application for telehealth or for remote uh, uh, learning. So it has to be. So you need to have all three of them. It's not enough to have broadband. You need to have. You need to be able to afford it, and you need to have application. And that's why, when uh, I had a conversation with World Economic Forum on the Edison Alliance, I said that this is the only platform, basically, in the world where you have all the representation needed. You have all the industries. Uh, you have all the private and public. Uh, you have the technology people there. And, and ultimately, we just need to see, see that we're scalable solutions, make awareness and advocacy worldwide about how to go about this and finding good ideas. So it, it's a broad set of challenges. We need to solve all three of them in order to have a sustainable infrastructure that each and every citizen on the, on the planet can access. Uh, and then it doesn't really matter where you're born or where you come from. You should have an equal chance. We're far away from that. But if it's one time in life you can make a change here, it's now. Everybody's aware. Government, every industry, every company is aware. It, it's not only the telecom, uh, telecom companies, technology companies, every industry. Is. Uh, and that's why I think timing is right. And if we, I can do something to, to, to improve this situation, I'm happy to do it. And that's why uh, when I had the conversation with World Economic Forum, I, I said, yes, this is a life mission for me. If I can, if I can do 
the little thing that moves this needle forward, I'm going to do it. And, um, and it's part of the strategy for our company to see that everyone is connected. You mentioned that this is a life mission for you. When did you realize that? I think the first time was probably in Africa. I'm not sure it was 2005, six or seven. And uh, we, we had enabled uh, uh, community workers in, in, I'm not sure if it was in Malawi or Ghana or something, with mobile phones. And a very simple program to actually go around and ask uh, every uh, person in the village about uh, their health status. And then, then they just put in the health status and they send it back. And, and suddenly what, we, what I realized that that would have taken years to get a doctor out to know if a disease was spreading or not. And they used the phone and community workers. So they used a very simple application, a super old phone, and just clicked in, are you feeling good? Have you had this disease or not? And that way of just gathering data to give the right healthcare at the right place, instead of sending doctors to 100 villages, in that case, they can send it to the tree that was affected. And then that's where somewhere there I understood it. I remember also I went to World Economic Forum the year after, and I was so excited to explain to everyone that this is the way we're going to do it. By then, 2009 or 10 or whatever, it wasn't much discussion about sustainability and see that everybody is involved and private sector was so, so involved. Today, it's totally different. I mean, every private company thinks this is important and, uh, and are doing their part of society uh, in order to make this a better planet. So I think that's where it started for me. And, and, uh, and since then, I've been... Being a strong believer, I've been in the UN Foundation's board for the last six, seven years for that simple reason. That I think that uh, if I can contribute with something uh, from my background uh, and uh, what I'm believing in, I should do it. If you hadn't had this realization, what would you be doing instead? Oh my God, I don't know. I mean, I come from a very small, small town in the northern part of Sweden where you don't have any exposure at all to these type of things that I, I've seen in the last 20, 25 years. So I got the a fantastic education and uh, an international exposure very early on in my career. I've lived in six, seven different countries. I probably have visited many of the countries on this earth and seen uh, both good things and I've seen bad things. So I think that it all, again, comes from your background and what you have seen. And that has, of course, shaped me enormously uh, as a leader and, and uh, what I care about and what my company care about. I'm not doing things that is not aligned with what my company is doing, what Verizon is doing. Verizon is, we think that mobility broadband in cloud is so essential, and our work is to see that each and everyone has that. And uh, so it's, it's aligned with what we are doing as a company as well, and that makes it much easier when you connect your, your societal strategy with your business strategy. It has to be the same. You cannot have them separated, because as soon as you make them separated, the first thing you do... Uh, is when you need to reduce cost, you're going to reduce whatever is uh, is something societal that has nothing to do with the company. So it, it, that's how I see it. If initiatives like the Edison Alliance weren't in place, what would the world look like in 2030? I think that I was, as everybody else, when I was young, you know, I saw these coalitions, you know, people from private, public was talking, no, not much was happening and why are they me? And what I learned from others, that's really where the magic is coming up, that we are we are constantly learning as a group. And if I bring right now with people with health uh, sort of industry background, financial background and educational background that is working in those, and I'm coming with my technology 
that's where I learned, and, and that's how it actually worked, and, and I can scale a solution that I did not understand before. Because you all work in silos, and if we don't have multi-stakeholder discussion, private, public, over industries, we're never going to learn and move it forward. And I learn every time I go into these meetings, if that is from something from Africa or Asia or something from the financial sector, I learn. So if we didn't have that, we're going to have an even more siloed world where people are less uh, understanding of others. We have a huge responsibility as private companies to bridge that. My employees probably listen more to me than than, uh, to many other stakeholders in our society. And if I then just add up uh, my employees with my supply chain chain that can impact, my customers that can impact, I I probably have millions of people that impact or we as a company impact. That that responsibility comes with actually trying to be uh, as knowledgeable as possible and being as aware as possible what's happening around you. It's a long answer for a, a fairly simple question what would happen if we didn't have it? But it's a reason why these meetings are happening. Uh, and, and don't underestimate multi-stakeholder gatherings in order to move forward. And the World Economic Forum is probably the biggest platform for multi-stakeholder discussion in the world. More and more people are accepting that we need different types of people from different disciplines to really tackle big problems. There are some holdouts, people who don't understand why they need to be in a group with their rival or with government or with other agencies. What do these folks need to get over so that we can get towards the type of collaborations that really solve big problems? It, it sounds a little bit strange, but, but it's, of course, you, you need to understand the, the great, the good, and, and, and the, the bigger responsibility you have than only your, yourself. Uh, you need to come over that pretty quickly. If you're only there to manage yourself and the success of yourself, of course you can do that. But if, you, if you're running a company or you're leading other people's or industries, and you know, uh, then you, you actually need to understand all the stakeholders around you. And I think that's, that's what you need to get over all the time. And, and for me, it, it's obvious that I've been educated in my childhood that you, you listen to others, you're part of the conversation. To take into account uh, all the stakeholders, ultimately you need to take decisions in the role that I have. But but uh, don't that don't do that because you think you know everything because you don't. So we've talked about digital inclusion through the SDGs and the Edison Alliance. But how is Verizon, the company, working to tackle this and looking to scale change? One thing that we did from the beginning was that every we, we have we have four stakeholders. We're going to have North Stars for all stakeholders. Uh, and we're going to have a strategy for them that hangs together. And that's a customer, employees, shareholders, society. So that was from the beginning. We embedded our societal strategy with the business strategy, employee strategy, and uh, uh, and the shareholder strategy. And uh, we decided for focusing on certain areas. So our focus has been uh, a lot around the climate change, where I think we can impact a lot, given the technology we have, both what we're doing ourselves, but how we can enable customers. The other is inclusion, where we work a lot with education, have big targets, how many students we're going to support in the U.S. Uh, we have invested more than half a billion dollars in, in schools when it comes to broadband uh, devices and STEM, uh, STEM uh, technology uh, education digitally. Uh, and then finally is the, the human part of it, training and reskilling people. Those three areas are all supporting our overall strategy. We also connected our employees to it to give them volunteer hours. 
So we told them we, we have a target and an ambition because you can never force anybody to do voluntaries around these three blocks. We call it actually uh, Cities and Verizon. That's an overall strategy name for what we're doing. And we connect it to our strategy so we cannot take it away. I, I love people going out to a soup kitchen and help, etc. But that has nothing to do with the strategy of Verizon. You cannot compromise in between the four stakeholders. You need to be good with all four of them. I think the trends are clear in the in, in, in society today. People tend to want to work for companies that have purpose and they, they understand the purpose. It brings them a lot of progress, but it also brings them to understand what is the overall strategy? Why is this important for us? Why it hangs together? And we have seen a great impact on that. And we put up a high ambition of how many volunteer hours this we should have during 2020. We all know how tough year that was. We exceeded that. People actually in our organization dedicated more time to volunteers than ever. And of course, with the support of the company. Uh, so I, 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 it just hangs together in a circular sort of way how you need to manage a company in the 21st century. You mentioned that during the crisis, volunteering went up. How important was aligning people on one purpose to drive that sort of consensus and that action? I, I usually talk about the culture system you have in the company where it comes to what, what are the purpose, uh, what are the core values you have, what is the brand values you have, meaning the external and internal values, and then what leadership philosophies you have. Those have to be aligned, uh, that you have leadership philosophies uh, that is supporting the internal values and the external values, and of course, supporting the, uh, the purpose. And I think that it's so important that this cultural sort of uh, uh, structure or system uh, is hangs together. And if you think how we would do it, and any other company would do it probably as well, is that if we have a leadership training, we train our employees on these are the leadership principles we have, and they are connected to the values that we have internally and externally, and that supports your overall purpose. So all this is more and more important in the 21st, 21st century when you're going to lead the company and when you're going to have a purpose-driven company where employees are engaged and want to work in your workplace and, and like to work there because they understand why they're there and what their role is in the overall uh, scheme of things. Is there a block and tackle way that anybody can put these ideas into practice? I usually divide it in three levels. One is, of course, if you're going to lead other people, you need to start with yourself. You need to know what you're good at, bad at. There's no one being perfect. And it starts by having that clear for you. And you need to ask people around you in order to get that clarity. The second is, of course, that it's not only about being a great leader of a leader upwards or downwards. It's also on the, on the sides with the people around you. And that's different models you can use for that, how you manage that. And then the last thing in the leadership is, of course, the thought leadership. How do you spend time on the most strategic and complicated things in your unit and where you are? That's sort of how I hang it together with the purpose of the company and how I want my team. And I don't tell my leaders to do as I am doing in these three, but you need to find your model, how to improve yourself, how to work with people around you and spend time on the most important things. Then I have developed models like I measure every hour. Uh, I've had the boss contract since I, I don't know, 
since I started the work where I basically told my boss, this is what I'm going to do instead of the boss telling me what I'm going to do in order to manage my expectation. Nowadays, I don't have one, but I had one for a long time. I always had a boss contract, sometimes one page for my manager to know what I'm going to do. Sometimes it was 27 pages. It was a business plan. But that's how I am managed upwards to see that my expectation has been right. And all again, you need to find your models for you as a leader and you need to develop them because ultimately leadership is a profession. It's like being an excellent accountant, an excellent marketeer, excellent engineer. You spend time to improve. People are, are, are under my sort of estimating the importance of a leader. Everybody talks about the leader. They always talk about the, the, my boss said that, she or he did that, you know, they had these clothes, they mentioned this. You're putting such a mark on people and they spend so much time at work or whatever it is where you're a leader. So you need to develop yourself. And that's how I see it overall, uh, the importance of leadership and connecting it to the purpose and then working, leading to the values that you want to have in the company. And in that self-leadership, what have you learned about yourself and what you can improve? Uh, how long time do I have? Uh, <laughs> no, of course, I learned a lot of myself. But I've learned that leadership is something that I, I, I need to be good at because that's really where my, that's what, what I'm doing every day. I empower, I give energy. That's my job. And, you know, it's hard. I mean, you know, as a leader, you know, uh, you can have your good and your bad days. Some days are bad, you know. You, it's not that fun every day to be, to be a CEO, even though people tend to believe that. And some days it's just fantastic. And I realized that if I'm going to be a good leader, those days when I think this is really not so good, you know, uh, I'm not the, the, that energy-giving guy. I'm not that empowering guy. So I started also some 10 years ago to measure every day. I call it the, the uh, sort of the mood indicator in order to know sort of how is my mood? What, what is triggering my me to have a, a good day or a bad day? Because ultimately, I'm leading so many people. And for them to give them energy, etc., if I don't have the energy, if I'm down, I'm not, I'm not the guy. I'm not playing on my strength because then I'm weak on my strengths even. So that's why I have my mood indicator. And I, I usually show that as well to my leadership team and tell them this is my strength. I try to see that I, I score from zero to 10 every day. So, of course, 10 is if, if then I'm over the top. People are exhausted being with me. And if I'm zero, I'm really bad. So there's some sweet spots in there. But for me, that has been another model for me to see that I, I'm working and I'm, I'm bringing forward the, the, the strength that I have every day. People tend to focus too much on the weaknesses of people. I, I tend to focus much more on the strength. Because if I get the even better strengths of the people, I'm going to find others that have strength in the weaknesses. And I try to do that same with myself. And that's why I cannot turn my strength to weaknesses. Uh, and that's why I have my mood indicator. And again, in Excel, every day, I do it the day after to see how the mood is going. Because then I can see also trends. When is my mood a little bit lower? When is higher? What is triggering me or not? So I would know. I can even... Probably do a forecast over time. <laughs> What's your mood today? <laughs> it's probably pretty, pretty high. <laughs> Is there a book you recommend or that you just enjoy? For me, you know, learning and education is one of the most important things you have as a leader. And I have the luxury to meet people that are just extraordinary leaders in the private and public sector uh, almost every day. I have taken a, a sort of a a view that I try to learn something from them every time I talk to them. 
Uh, and that's how I've been educating myself and bringing a lot of new knowledge. If I talk to uh, big CEOs, I always ask them a couple of questions that wouldn't be expected from me. I mean, how are you dealing with this, you know, and uh, what's your approach? So this might not have anything to do with the business relation we have because I want to learn from it. And that has been the way I've been learning maybe more than a particular book, etc. But for me, I have such a great opportunity and benefit of meeting all these leaders. So I actually take a bit of all of them in order to be better. Are there particular questions that you tend to ask when you're with these other leaders? What do you focus on? I mean, just asking that to uh, world leaders or uh, world CEOs, you know, you get pretty interesting qu- comments. And I mean, I spend the time. So how do you manage your time? You know, uh, <laughs> these are things that I dreamt of asking these people. And I, I have the luxury to ask these uh, questions nowadays. Are there any tips you've stolen? That's how it works when you educate yourself. <laughs> and no, it's not stolen, but I learn and, and thinking about... Borrowed. I borrow, yeah. borrow, borrow processes from others, how they're approaching problems, uh, uh, etc. Yes, definitely. And one last question. Uh, a lot of times people think of leadership as something that you either have or you don't have, that it's some sort of innate quality, not something that you develop or that you adapt. Why is understanding that it's something that you need to constantly work on so important? Uh, why do people need to see it as a profession? I think that it starts with that you are willing to take the responsibility to lead others, and that's a huge responsibility. In my case, coming to work every day and take the responsibility to see that people are actually feeling good and being at the place, working there, being fair and transparent. It doesn't really matter if you manage 100,000 people or five. But to be honest, you, you need to look into, are you willing to sacrifice and lead other people? And uh, I think People don't realize that sometimes, but you need to spend time on it to be a really good leader. And I I still have a lot of learning to do, and I, I have a lot of improvement to do. That was Hans Vesberg. Before we go, don't forget to check out a preview from Radio Davos on our recent Global Technology Government Summit. Here's a sample from host Robin Pomeroy on the special event held just this week online, hosted by Japan and the World Economic Forum. Technology is advancing faster than most of us can comprehend. The old 16 by 9 rectangles give way to the little 16 by 9 rectangles, give way to VR goggles and contacts and chips in the brain. And it will have a big impact on our lives and livelihoods. What's on the horizon are diminished reality glasses that would allow you to remove from your view, whether that's garbage or other people. A sort of digital Downton Abbey where we don't ask Echo, what's the weather, or Google, what's the weather, we just say, what's the weather? And synthetic biology, improving biology redesigning organisms for beneficial purposes. With those advances come great opportunities, but also great risks. We have to figure out a new age. That means dramatic changes to the structure of our economy and our society. The World Economic Forum and the Government of Japan brought together leaders from governments, academia, business and civil society from 125 countries for a Global Technology Governance Summit to look at the big challenges posed by the big advances. This next wave, which I call the industrial digitization, is the kind of transformation where we can solve the fundamental challenges that the world still has. Join me, Robin Pomeroy, and Ina Fried, Chief Technology Correspondent at Axios, on Radio Davos for a look at the best moments from the Global Technology Governance Summit. Where do we have an advantage over a super intelligent machine? It's actually in knowing what it's like to be a human being. A glimpse into the future from the Global Technology Governance Summit, coming soon on Radio Davos. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Foresight is not about making predictions. 
It's about preparation, making better decisions in the present. A podcast from the World Economic Forum, Radio Davos. That's a highlight from one of the first of two special DTGS episodes of Radio Davos, brought to you by Robin Pomeroy. Get that in all of our World Economic Forum podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other top platforms. My thanks go out to Gareth Nolan, Anna Bruce Lockhart, and Robin Pomeroy for all of their help with the production of this episode. Thanks, of course, go to this week's guest, Hans Vestberg. And thanks to you for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcasts. And for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online to wef.ch slash podcasts. And follow us online on social media on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and Twitter using the handle WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.